inspire. Welcome back to Starting Now. I'm your host, Jeff Saris. This is the show where I talk to entrepreneurs to reveal the unexpected paths to entrepreneurship. Today, my guest is Herbert Loy. Herbert is a, an entrepreneur. He's a writer. He is a lifelong learner. We dive into a lot of topics on this episode, like quantity versus quality, the value of building your support network. And we dive into Herbert's story and how he he tapped in to that support network to build his business and build his career. Um, we also dive into some of the books that Herbert is into right now because he is a voracious reader and he has some really great tips on how to how to not only curate and vet the books that that you're reading, but how to how to use them and to eh, I guess to best support what you want out of the book. There, as he said, books have an immense return on investment that when you find the right ones, they can make all the difference. So without further ado, my conversation with Herbert Loy. So I want to dive in at the very beginning, just um, who are you and what are the, some of the things that you do? Yeah, uh, so I'm an author. I wrote a book. Uh, I'm also an editorial director. So I work with um, a lot of companies on starting blogs. Nice. Yeah. So yeah. then um, a lot of it comes down to, to the writing. And let's let's sort of uh, what is a daily what does your business look like on an individual day? So like what types of things are you typically doing? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. There is it's like you said earlier, there's not really a, a typical day, but I think that for me, um, how I structure my days is, um, you know, a couple of hours of writing in the morning uh, and probably like some of the reading and research work that I need to do as well. And then, you know, there's lunch and in the afternoon, it'll probably be a combination of, you know, communications and um, and catching up with people or, you know, corresponding on email and stuff like that. Um, that's how that's how my day to day looks like. Mm-hmm. And then um, your company, yeah. it's Wonder Shuttle, correct? Um, yeah, that's right. It's Wonder Shuttle, and we're an editorial studio that uh, works with software companies on their blogs. So folks like Shopify, uh, Twilio, and organizations like the City of Toronto as well. Nice. So yeah, those are some bigger names. How do, did you initially get in touch with them? How did you start building that client base? Yeah, for sure. I mean... Uh, we can start with the three of them with Shopify and with Twilio as well. Uh, both of them, I kind of solicited referrals to them. So I use forwardable emails, right? So, um, I can unpack that later or, I mean, for folks, if, do you think that's interesting? Oh yeah. Yeah. Go for it. Okay, cool. Okay. So, um, a forwardable email is kind of like an email you send over to someone that you might want to make an introduction. Uh, but you're not asking them to make the introduction yet. You're just asking them to forward it along to that person so that um, that person can gauge, hey, like, yeah, I want to be introduced to Herbert or not, like, pass, right? Mm-hmm. So it puts the the person you're making the request of in a much better position because, hey, you know, I can forward it along, of course. And if it's interesting, then they know they did both of you a favor, so they're, they're looking good. Um, and so... Yeah, I sent 
uh, I send a lot of those for, for my business, honestly, to develop it. Uh, and that's how I connected with um, uh, Tommy, who's a good friend now and works at or worked at Shopify Plus at the time, as well as uh, a gentleman named Devong, who worked at Twilio at the time. And with the city of Toronto, it was actually an old, old colleague, um, meaning old in terms of career, career timelines. Uh, we met each other several years ago. Um, and she happened to be working at the city of Toronto and, and uh, timing happened to be right. And, and that's, I think, what a lot of the B2B business development sort of thing is. It's like right time, right opportunity. Let's, let's make it happen. Oh, yeah. And the right connections, too. And not not in like a cynical way that it's who you know, not what you know, but in the in, in the positive that like life is about our our network, our community, the people that we surround ourselves with. So it's it's very important to build up a network of like minded individuals who are supporting one another. So when you were reaching out those forwardable emails, how were you um, selecting the people you were reaching out to? Was it mostly your personal network already? Were they sort of uh, one step removed? How are you approaching that? So everyone who everyone who I reach out to, I know already. Mm-hmm. So it's just a matter of how much and like how well I know them. Um, usually, like I really try to, especially lately, like I've been pickier and pickier with who I reach out to just because I think I mean, you kind of touched on it when we talked about like the, the connections, right? Like, I think it gets, it's, it's just brutal when it's like super transactional. Mm-hmm. And when you're making a request of someone and you don't really know them that well, then it's like, well, like, you know, I don't know if I want to be asking you a favor. Um, but I think for anyone trying this out, it's still worth kind of towing the line and figuring out where your boundary is, right? Like a lot of people end up saying, uh, oh, hey, like, I don't know this person that well. Like, that's how it is on LinkedIn. Like, everyone kind of adds each other or maybe <laughs> yeah. like from a few years back, we none of us knew how to use this thing. Um, but but they're like, hey, if if there's anyone else I can intro you to, let me know. And, and a lot of people are really nice like that. And then some people will actually be like, hey, let's catch up or let's do this or let's do that. So there, it might be an excuse to, to like build that relationship directly as well. Mm-hmm. And then... For these clients, what type of work are you generally doing? Yeah, so um, a lot of our work involves uh, the operations and strategy behind starting a blog, which sounds simple enough for like, you know, me and you like one one click, here, here we go, right? <laughs> but it's actually kind of complicated in teams because there's a lot of different things you need to consider. First of all, where's the content coming from? Do we build a writing team? Are we getting our internal team to do it? So for example, if we're starting a blog for a company that wants to do more recruiting, like let's say they're trying to recruit more engineers, which is a really hard problem to solve. They're like, oh, we want our engineers to write more. Well, they all have day jobs. So it's like, how do we incentivize them to write more? And can we add some muscle, like, you know, writers who can interview them or whatnot? Uh, And also which stories to tell, how do we source the stories? Um, How do we... Like, should everyone be able to write or should no, like, should we limit it first? And how do we promote? And should we use medium or ghost or what? Like, there's a lot of these questions that come into play. And, um, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. And so that's what we're on for is like, okay, cool. We've, we've done this before. Um, We've, you know, been around the block and kind of know the right operational things and strategic things and also the trade-offs between these things. Like, there's not always a right way to do it. So 
you know, just kind of navigating, hey, like, here are your circumstances. Here's like what we'd recommend in this case. Yeah. And then, so there's a lot of strategy that goes into that. I mean, a lot of the planning and building um, the product that's going to return on their investment. So what is the general promise um, of the business? When, you, when people come in, they're like, I want X. So I want to start a blog for X. So what is your uh, general um, expectations on the incoming clients? Yeah, um, I think that, um, so the most important thing is to actually, I think, be ready to start it. Like I think a lot of people generally kind of want want to do it. They They have the budget, but like, it's just a time thing, right? And priority sort of thing. So the best projects, obviously, everyone's ready to do it. And we kind of have our own, I mean, it, I would like to say we have our own vetting process, but honestly, like it's, you can kind of tell, like it's pretty organic, right? You can tell whether it's in the conversation and the relationship, um, you know, are they even just as simple as like responding emails on time or like how much, how much involvement does the owner have and the manager and so on and so forth. So I think that's part of the biggest thing. It's like, okay, like making sure everyone's on board there. Um, and then for us, you know, outside of the strategy, we also offer um, a kind of like co-writing service. So basically we have a team of writers and editors and researchers, you know, who we're, we're all really good at interviews. And so we just talk to, to the engineers or whoever's writing the blog. And, uh, and then like we can take the talking points from there, turn into thousand or 1500 words and then have them edit it. So we turn this like 10 hour thing down into maybe two hours or three hours for them. And so, uh, that's, I think that's where we can also support with saving time and, and setting that expectation for people as well. Yeah. I mean, that is, that's a huge benefit because it, it's tough. You mentioned like engineers writing the, the articles and things that's not necessarily where their mind space is. So having someone like you come in and, or a team, um, actually team wise, how big is the company? How many employees or contractors or whatever do you typically work with? Yeah. So on any given project, we'll have uh, me being the editorial director um, and an editorial manager. So working, um, you know, more closely to manage the actual like day-to-day -day operations of things. Uh, and so I, I used to have someone on full-time for that. And now it's just more like by the project. Mm -hmm. um, and then we'll have maybe, I would say, depending on the size, usually around like two to three writers uh, who... Yeah, do a, a bunch of the heavy lifting. Um, sometimes the editorial manager also, you know, steps in and, and supports uh, with the more, you know, maybe a more complicated idea or so will I as well. Oh, yeah. So before you started this, sort of what is your origin story? Who was Herbert before uh, Wonder Shuttle? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I would say that um, we could probably start with, yeah. So I was this, I was, I was born in uh, a little suburb outside of Toronto mm -hmm. called Scarborough. Uh, my folks came here from Hong Kong. It's, I was just kind of laughing because I'm like, where should I go with the origin story? And I was just, oh, I'll just go all the way to the beginning. Well, <laughs> fast forward, of course, we'll time skip a bunch. And so, you know, they, uh, we moved around a little bit, but always stayed just outside of Toronto. And um, when I was in, probably in the middle of high school, I started blogging because a friend of mine we were playing basketball and he was I was like oh what are you up to after we were playing and 
is that, oh, you can make money online blogging. Like I'm trying to do that. And that's how I, that's how I really started blogging independently. Um, it, well, there was always a kind of a business component to it, I guess, because my parents wouldn't let me get a part-time job. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, fast forward, maybe a few years Actually, for one in, second, what was oh, that yeah. first blog? What was the topic? Yeah. <laughs> if you, I, it's so funny cause I was looking at it the other day. I can't remember why, but if you go to, it was called Herb's blurbs <laughs> and I was just writing about technology. Um, I had a cousin, I have a cousin, uh, who, um, runs a, like kind of this like computer peripheral website. So he would review all these hardware accessories and stuff. And, you know, before I started my blog, I actually wrote a couple of articles for him and he would send me these like, you know, review samples. And it was his dream because, you know, he just got all this stuff without having to pay for it. He always did correct me though. when I said that it was free, he's like, it's not free. We're putting a lot of time into this (laughs) word. That's true. Um, And so I naturally, when I started my blog, I also started writing about tech stuff. So more like software or like, interesting things that I, that I saw and, and more speculative things. Um, and I was really inspired by like TechCrunch and like Engadget and Gizmodo at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So now how does, how does your personal blog evolve into, uh, the business today then? Yeah. So, um, blogging, it was, so even from the software and infrastructure perspective, I, for 99.99% of the time have used WordPress. Uh-huh. Uh, now my uh, Wonder Shuttle site's on Webflow, uh, but a bunch of my other sites are still on WordPress. And that's because I started using WordPress back in the day. Um, and in order to, to promote your blog or to even like kind of build credibility in the space, like I was like 15 at the time or something. So I would be like guest blogging for a bunch of people. I'd be like, oh, like, you know, what do I even say on my about page? So I want the, oh, Herbert has appeared in this and that. And I just started guest blogging for people and I really liked that. Um, and that was a large part as well. Like not only the developing the writing side of things. So my, even the studio started as like me being a freelance writer and trying to do all, like trying to work with companies and realizing, oh, like there's a lot of non-writing questions you guys are asking me. <laughs> um, but also like, there's a component of the promotion side, which is really important. Um, you know, whether it's for quote unquote, like thought leadership or leading thinking is probably a nicer way of saying that, but also a brand and credibility perspective, people like getting their ideas in other publications and places like that. So um, that was, that skill came in really handy as well. I would say that uh, that was a really long winded way of saying blogging probably gave me the writing and promotional skill set in order to do the business and to bootstrap it. Absolutely. And what was then that inspiration to make that leap? Were you already making money from blogging or was um, was helping other people sort of that first foray into entrepreneurship? Yeah. So actually, it's funny. I stopped writing for a while when I got into college um, and around like the middle of it, I was I was going through something like I was uh, I had wanted to get into this business school and, um, you know, all my friends were doing it and I was like, oh, this is going to prove that I'm just as smart as everyone else. Uh, and um, and I didn't get in. And I was just, you know, it was a combination of a lot of things. I think I was just burnt out from the year before and and whatnot. 
was a big one. But the long story short of that was I, you know, I was, you know, that summer after the rejection, I was like, oh, like, what am I going to do? This trajectory point is like trending downwards. It's not good. Um, and I was just trying to keep busy. I was like, okay, cool. I know I want to go into marketing because that's a very realistic thing. Um, and it's somewhat practical and somewhat creative. Uh, and so I was actually a campus ambassador for some social media agency at the time. And, uh, and this guy, Dave Wilkin ran it and it was called Redwood. And now he runs a company called 10,000 Coffees. And they were having this feedback group for the students. So, you know, I, I went and I think they took, they're like, oh, like we'll take pictures for your social media or something too. And I was like, okay, cool. And basically after it, I think, I think it might've just been me and Dave and Dave's like, yo, so like, what's, what's happening right now? Like, what's, what's the, what's the story here? Like, why are you here? And, and I was like, oh, well, you know, like, I don't know, Dave, Dave's a really easy to talk to. So I just kind of like blurted everything. I'm like, <laughs> oh, like, you know, you're, you're starting your own company. You must give, have some advice on this. And I was explaining, oh, like, I got rejected from this business school. I really wanted to get into, and I'm not sure what I'm going to do next. I'm just trying to figure it out. And he was like, you know what? That like, how much extra tuition would that school have cost you? And, um, and I was like, oh, probably an extra like 5, 10K. He was like, you know what you should do is take the 5, 10K and go to a bunch of conferences, like maybe two or three, and try to actually meet VPs of marketing and CMOs and directors, and then talk to those people directly. And, and that'll get you the opportunity to work with them on their marketing teams. And I was like, okay, that's like a really good idea. I didn't think of that. I don't know why, but I didn't think of that. And so Dave really connected that dot for me. So maybe six months later, I got introduced to someone who ran this like Canadian blog called Tech Vibes. It was Canadian tech blog. And it was like really, I think it was one of those blogs that wasn't as big as TechCrunch, but like you go anywhere in Canada, like in a conference and people, oh, like, I think I've been there before. <laughs> so it wasn't like, you know, it was, it was recognized enough, I think. And I was uh, writing for Rob Lewis, who was the editor in chief at the time. And one day he just, uh, I think he forwarded me, me an email and he was like, hey, you've been doing a lot of interviews with people. Do you want to go to this conference? I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and then he was like, okay, cool. Here's the pass. And I was like, oh my gosh. I didn't have to spend a dollar. And like my cousin said earlier, I know it wasn't free, but you know, to Dave's point, like I just saved myself like 2000 bucks and, and the organizers really liked me. So they would like connect me with the speakers and we would talk. And, um, and that was how I started writing a lot more again. It was because I had this really practical like need to do it, I think. But um, I also just started going to these conferences and, you know, I needed to write in order to get the articles in order to keep going back and to do more. Uh, and so I must have gone to like tens of thousands of dollars worth of conferences between like 2011 to 2013. It was amazing. Yeah. I mean, there is so much value. It, again, because it comes back to people. There's so much value in going to a conference where people are doing the things that you either aspire to do or you can assist with. That is, I feel like one of the hacks too that people sometimes miss is like you're a writer you could be theoretically at any conference. Like you're going to the ones that yeah. you want to be in that niche, but I mean, just to like have a random one, you could go to a magician's conference as a writer 
because you will be the only one at that conference who's like connecting with people with this other offering. It's a huge opportunity. Like, I think that's, that was a great trajectory and really, yeah, like valuable advice. Obviously, right now, conferences are a little, little different due to uh, COVID mm-hmm. and everything. But moving forward, there's always, always other opportunity. Do you have any um, thoughts in terms of that for right now? Um, maybe some alternatives to conferences? Yeah, well, um, I think that definitely, I think that if you write somewhere, actually, I noticed this, whether you, if you write somewhere, just emailing someone for an interview already, like someone you want to get introduced to or you want to meet already is like adding value to them, right? You come from a place of adding value. So that becomes, I think, more compelling an offer to them. You could write at Medium. You could, you know, start a podcast. You could, you could um, start a blog. Like, there's like a bajillion different a like, clubhouse now, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there's so many different ways of you to do it, for you to do it. And uh, I would say that like conferences are like a more a mass sort of thing. And there's a lot of serendipity and stuff that happens. There, you might miss a bit of that with with this, but you could actually just email, like you know, oh, like. If I'm looking back now, I could have emailed the VP of marketing at some agency or like at RBC and just been like, oh, like, let's like, let's talk for Tech Vibes or let's talk for my own blog, Herb's Blurbs. <laughs> I probably need to change the name. I don't think anyone would want to go on Herb's Blurbs anymore. Um, but yeah, I would say like cold emailing people. Um, and then a lot of serendipity now happens, I think like at the platforms, right? Like it's at the Twitter level, the, the clubhouse, like those places, or you just don't know who's hanging out where. And I think right now we're all kind of, especially clubhouse, because we're all at home, uh, we probably spend a lot more time on our phones listening and we have the ability to listen. Jury is out on whether that happens as, you know, as soon as the lockdowns start lifting and gradually, but I'm sure they'll, they'll think of more ways to make that stuff happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's so much opportunity. It is. It's different. So it might be the scale with which you need to pursue it might be a little different than, say, like a conference yeah. and connecting with people one on one. But yeah, I think it's yeah, a lot of opportunity. So Medium, you mentioned you've written a lot on there. You've you've done really well on Medium. And you've also mentioned that you've earned some revenue directly from it. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about how that works? Yeah, for sure. So um, I've been writing at Medium since 2013. So I was at my first job at the time. And uh, I was just like, you know, I I had wanted a place to write and everyone was talking about Medium. And so I, uh, I just put some text in there and I shipped it. And, and I think the first post, I didn't actually, it didn't do that well. But I remembered like the founder of, uh, of Medium and Twitter, Ev Williams, like, hearted it. And it was, like, not, like, my best work. I mean, at the time, I thought it was really cool. But I was like, wow, this guy is, like, on here reading? Like, okay, cool. Like, (laughs) maybe I should keep writing here. And Medium was very different from what it is today at the time. Like, it was kind of like what Substack is right now. Like, it's very, like, du jour. Like, it was, you know, a lot of founders were on there. A lot of tech people were on there. And so I was working in tech, and I was like, oh, like, this is a cool place. And uh, the second post I wrote actually ended up doing really well. And so that started that feedback loop. I think at the time, it was kind of like the gold rush of, of that platform's life at the time. Like, you know, I, I read this stat where 
back in 08 or 09, the average YouTube video got like 10,000 views and now it gets like 89 or something like that. <laughs> and it was like that for Medium in 2013 where like, you know, you can publish a lot, like, like you could publish and get a lot of views. And a lot of people got book deals out of that during the time. Um, and so that's why I started writing there. But as with all platforms, it kind of, you know, the views kind of trickled away. Uh, and so I was like, okay, well, you know, maybe I spend less time writing here. And the business was actually thriving and needed some more like maintenance and steadying as, as it grew. And so I was um, gradually the habit kind of slipped away for a year or two. I would write more sporadically. Uh, and then in, 29, in 2019, I picked it back up. And I noticed that Medium had launched their partner program like maybe two or three years ago. But I didn't really opt in. I was like, oh, like, you know, I, I just didn't have the bandwidth to do it. And uh, August 2019, I wrote my first post uh, for the Medium partner program with one of their own publications called Forge. And, uh, and at the time, they paid a bonus and you also got like, you know, a slice of the medium the big medium pie right uh so uh, i could go into the business model if you might think that's interesting but basically from there uh i just kept writing kept pitching the medium publications because they they send a lot of traffic uh and in all of 2020 i ended up making just over four thousand dollars us nice. uh on medium which is nice uh i say that with an asterisk which is i also know people who make like more than that every month. So I think I'm somewhere in the, probably in the middle uh, or maybe like the upper middle. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a really good place to, to spend time if you're a writer or interested in working with words and just looking for a new place to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And that sort of goes back to diversification with what you're doing. So you have medium, it's not your, your main focus, your main income, but having that steady, fairly steady income from there, along with the eyeballs that that brings in, there's a lot of return on that investment. Um, what are some other ways that you've like diversified? So you have medium and then your business. Um, do you have anything else out there? Yeah, so I got my book. Uh, it's, it's called There's No Right Way to Do This. And it's a practical guide uh, full of, you know, actions, mindsets and stories uh, to support people who want to improve their creative work. Um, and so I released that, I think like November of last year and that's, that's out there. And then I think those are the main three. I have some other, like a bunch of other projects that mm -hmm. I did in my earlier career, uh, where I just wasn't that interested in monetizing, but in hindsight, I actually should have tried. So for example, um, there's a video series called prologue where, uh, my friends and I, we just did video interviews with the recording artists that we really liked. So um, folks like Ty Dolla Sign or like Post Malone or ASAP Ferg were the three most recent ones. Um, and that was a lot of fun. And I mean, it kind of goes back to the interviewing skill set that I developed at Tech Vibes as well. Uh, but that was in video. So it was like cool to explore that. And, and um, I mean, it's almost... It's almost a, a different world to think about now that we're, you know, now that, now that COVID hit. But at the time, it was just so, you know, musicians were going on tour all the time. So they would always come to Toronto and, you know, we would just email them, like email them or like five or 10 people from their team 
last minute and and like someone would in- inevitably respond and be like hey like i think publicists really thrive on that last minute kind of like oh like this is it like you were going to do this anyway and uh-huh. like now we can get more out of this so yeah, you're I giving them the value there. you're giving the yeah. publicist what they're looking for so it's a perfect exactly yeah yeah and the artist the artist gets a little bit out of it i mean we also get a lot out of it uh you know there's just it's i'd never been backstage before that so it was like a really cool set of experiences it was like um it, we didn't get to ride it out as long as almost famous but we had <laughs> almost famous moments there you know <laughs> nice yeah. yeah it's funny how many things like looking back it's like oh yeah that's like a different life ago but it's part of your journey and what really like got you to where you are it's I feel like all of the things, that's why I like to dive in sort of to this origin story and everything is a winding path for everyone. So it's always an unexpected journey. So I think it's, I think it's great to dive in. So I wanted to talk about some of the topics you've written about a little bit. Um, sure. The quantity versus quality one, which that on Medium has done phenomenally well. And it's, I think it's a really valuable thing to drive home. Yeah. So the... The idea, that article was, I think, maybe the fifth or sixth one I published at Medium. And the premise of it is basically we treat quantity and quality like trade-offs. And it doesn't have to be like that. Like, sometimes it kind of is. There's a tension for sure. But a lot of times we can actually harness quantity to work in favor of quality. And actually, I think that, like, a lot of the... um, a lot of the artists we really admire, like whether it's Mozart, Van Gogh, or Picasso, uh, or even an inventor like Edison, all use this strategy in some way, right? So let's take Edison, for example. The guy did over 1,500 patents. He applied for 1,500. He got he got 1,000, I think slightly over 1,000, but we only mainly know him for one, right? Uh-huh. Like maybe two, but mainly one. And there's all these lists. It's funny when you Google it, there's like these... Uh, historians or or writers who look at Edison's like failed inventions and he has some epic failed inventions there's like you know I think there's like a concrete house there's like so many like this guy's mind was was really interesting Uh, but we know him for the incandescent light bulb and he didn't even do the incandescent light bulb he did like a feasible version of it right I think with a really specific material so you know someone like Picasso as well is like the guy did over he's in the Guinness Book of World Records still, I think, for for the most number, like the most paintings, I think. Um, and so it's I think that style is is interesting. Right. So I think that the quantity point kind of. Um, it's an interesting look into the person, the way that people think. So, like, oh, just release a lot of work and keep doing it. Um, but also to kind of. I think it's worth going deeper as well into seeing, hey, like what's what what was the thing that uh, that encouraged them to do this quantity, right? Like, were they inspired every day every day? Well, like probably not every day. So like what else kept each person doing it? And I'm sure that the, each person has a different reason, but the commonality that they have is, hey, we you know, they all did a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. yeah. and have you then applied that to your work? I mean, I feel like you have to a degree, just even at the initial of what you're saying with your outreach and your forwardable emails and things, like it feels like it's a key component of how you've built. So how have you uh, approached it? Yeah, 
for sure. So um, I, it's taken some tweaking. So I, I'll, I'll start with this, which is I remembered my first job at Extreme Labs, which uh, was the place I met Paula, who, who worked in the city of Toronto. Uh, my manager at the, there at the time, um, Megan, she, she, I had just written this quantity post and I was like, oh, like, you know, I'm going to apply it to everything. Just quant- <laughs> the more I make, the better it's going to be. And, you know, it was like maybe end of day and like end of week maybe. And Megan was like, you know, Megan just, you know, pulls me aside and is like, Herbert, love the quantity. You're so, you know, the stuff you're making, it's, you're delivering at a great speed. Need you to work on the quality a little bit. <laughs> I was like, oh, damn, what does that mean? And, um, and I was like, oh, I thought this quantity thing was supposed to take care of everything, uh, which was very naive of me at the time. But um, what I'm, what I realized and learned along the way is that um, I think quant- quantity, when, when you make a lot of stuff, you also have to make like a certain level of things, right? Uh, it can't be just all like bad stuff or like stuff you kind of just threw together or like, you know, even there's musicians who kind of like, you know, just reverse the track and they called it a new song, right? Like you can't just keep doing that. It's got to be acceptable and it's got to meet, I think, a certain set of criteria. So if we look at it kind of almost like a factory, right? Like a, or like a craftsperson would do it. Like they, they don't let the shoe leave the desk until it's like been quality checked and like, oh, like I, I did it my way. And I think everybody needs their way. And what I was lacking at the time was my way. Uh, or the team's way as well. Like we didn't have like a really aggressive editorial style guideline. So, but I should take responsibility for it. I think that um, what I learned along the way is to develop criteria and to always keep improving that criteria as you step up the quality. So the, the I mean, as you step up the quantity, so you're learning and learning and learning and releasing. And it's like, okay, now let's take it all back in. And why did this do well? Why did this not do well? Well, this didn't, externally do well like it didn't have a lot of page views but i'm reading it and i really like it well what do i like about it and what should i keep so these are the more challenging questions that are worth asking and that's when quantity kind of gets more aligned to quality because you're using each release as a way to get feedback into how you can do it better and it's not always just external right like not just the data side which is important but also the um, inherent thing that you like about it. Like you don't have to make the perfect thing, but it should be, it should be trending more and more to where you like. And it helps because as you evolve as a person or as an artist, that quality and criteria might change. Like one of my favorite recording artists or just artists in general is Kanye West. And like, you look at his three albums and you listen to them and it's like, Oh, like they all sound really good. They're like the first, the second, third, you can see the evolution. So, okay. I like what it is, but the fourth, the fifth, the sixth to the ninth, it's like, I can't even believe it's the same artist who made them. Like they <laughs> sound completely different. And most artists would probably, you know, I don't know many artists that can pull that off, but he's figured out, Hey, here's who I am, but I'm going to work with a bunch of different people every time, but I'm still going to be me. I think like, you know, I mean, there's some examples of anti-patterns, but I don't really want to, I don't want to get into like, oh, like this person's a worst musician or whatever. So <laughs> I would say, I would just leave it there and say, um, I think that's how the quality of it evolves. And you, uh, there's a guy who wrote this book, Dean Keith Simonton, who wrote the Genius Checklist. So 
in the genius checklist, he writes about um, how, this idea where like perfect emerges from quantity. When you take that quantity approach, like you allow for perfect to emerge. You're not trying to artificially piece together perfect. And I think that's where a lot of people get stuck is they see something perfect and they're like, okay, this is, this is amazing. I want to do something like this. That's why I'm going to write. That's why I'm going to become an artist. That's why I'm going to build a business. And it's really hard, especially at the beginning to do it and you get blocked and your expectations go up and the execution isn't fast enough to match the rise of the expectations. So um, that's where I think quantity really comes into play. Um, I'll just say one more thing, which is Simonton's research is absolutely invaluable here. And he's done decades of research uh, looking into uh, the field of historiometrics. And that's just looking at the data behind um, the, the the artists we consider geniuses now and looking at their processes and, and you know, trying to see the correlations. And what he noticed was that uh, productivity and quantity uh, was one of the biggest drivers of quality. I think he phrases it as quality is a probabilistic function of quantity, which just means there's always going to be outliers like, oh, one person makes one thing and it's amazing. So maybe like Frank Ocean is an example of that, right? Like very few releases, but they're all great. But then you also have just people who make like a lot of stuff and maybe one of them is great. Like Edison might be an example, right? So um, yeah, I think like his research is super valuable and that's where I found a lot of the stuff about Picasso and Edison and stuff. Yeah, that reflection is important because if we want if we want perfection the first time and we're looking at it and trying to be like, oh, this will be the perfect thing, we might never ship. We may never ship. We may never like actually get the thing out there to see if it's even up to like half of our taste. It's, I mean, like Ira Glass. Ira Glass has the quote that like when you start, your taste is really high, but your skills don't match the taste and you're always chasing that. And I think that's hugely valuable. But to your point too, we do need to really keep that that level in mind because if we're not if we're not producing a massive quantity of stuff or even a quantity of stuff, I don't want to say massive, yeah. but if we're producing a quantity of stuff and not later reflecting upon, did this work or do I still like this thing that I did a month ago, two months ago? So like, is this still is this what I want to be doing? Like, we need to we need to have that reflection to actually grow. So, in terms of in terms of the reflection now for you and how you may be approaching sort of quantity, like today, how are you looking, how are you looking at that for your work? Yeah. So um, one of the things I started doing recently is I started blogging again, like just old school blogging, like no SEO, no, no, whatever, no promo, just blog. And I just, I just wanted to do it for myself again. And I think that, uh, that process or that practice I see, I mean, hopefully there is some tangible value that comes out of it, but the more important thing is to kind of develop the voice, right? Like I think that, you know, coming from business school and from a marketing perspective, I've always been like, okay, let's go to where the market is. But it's also very important if we're talking about, um, let's say an idea like personal brands, right? Like we're, you know, we, oh, we all know it's important to build our personal brands now. I think 90% of the conversation is focused on the brand side and like 10 is focused on the personal side when it should probably be the opposite. Like we all need to figure out who we are, think about our experiences, kind of like 
watch our personalities as they develop too, because everyone changes every day. And to discover, you know, our values, the things we really stand for, and then how to best represent them to the world. And so that's what I see the practice of blogging as, like, you know, three times a week, uh, maybe four times. And um, I just also, I really like blogs. Like I, I still go to Eddie Wong's old like Blogspot blog. He <laughs> never writes there anymore, so I'm I'm not trying to look for new stuff. But uh, I just really like the way he, you know, he started his restaurant Bauhaus back in I think 2011. And the first post is so funny. He's like, "Hey, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to start a restaurant, and I decided yesterday that I was going to start a restaurant. So why should you listen to me?" And it was that's awesome. The guy is yeah, exactly, and he's so funny. And like, you know, I think he did develop his writing skills through a lot of practice. Um, and so I still like going back in there and like, like seeing how he used to do it because he's uh, succeeded. And I think he's just made a lot of work that I really like as well, personally. So I think part of if we were talking about quality and style guides, like part of that is there too, which is like, can you kind of look at the things you like and the people who made them and understand why you like them or understand what it is about those uh, those pieces of work that you that you really like. Um, I think that's one of the propositions that I have in in the book. Um, like I don't really I have like a bunch of points in there which I think that most books would position them as like really authoritative, um, you know, here's the right way to do things type of advice. And I just said, hey, you know what? Everything in here, you should be able to say yes or no to. So to say this as advice is too much and it's too certain, quite frankly, right? It may or may not work for you. I really liked, um, I was just listening to the Daniel Vasallo podcast that you did with him. And he, he has the same, like, I really like what he said about that same topic. He's like, oh, I try not to, I don't, I'm paraphrasing. I don't want to misquote him. But he was saying something along the lines of, oh, I, I want to speak from my experiences. I don't want to talk too much about things I don't know about or like, here's the only way to do it. I just want to like talk about what I did and why I think it worked. And I was like, that's amazing. Uh, that kind of, I think we all need to kind of free ourselves of this idea that, hey, this is the right thing to do. And I'm going to, you know, pay a bunch of money to learn it. Or I'm going to like, you know, once I have it, it's going to be easy street from there. Yeah, I think that that is that is a lot of the problem because people will put together their course. Like this is the way to start a business and charge a thousand dollars for it. And this is what I did seven years ago. And it's like, well, yeah, that's not the same. Like once it's once that path is tread once, the the path has changed. It's not identical. But I say that with also saying that inspiration I think is so underappreciated. Like going to Eddie Wong's site, you're not reading that to be like, oh, step one in 2011 was this. But you're reading yeah. it to be like, okay, this is an amazing journey. I I'm, con I feel connected to him, connected to his journey, and I really appreciate what he does. Let me take that feeling and now apply it to what I'm doing. So like, yeah, I think it's, it's, yeah, really great points that like, we're not trying to outline, I don't want to dive in your story because I don't want to outline like, oh, do this, do this, email these people, email the publicist for these uh, recording artists. Yeah. But at the same time, I think it's awesome for people to see that 
that, yeah, this is your winding path to a destination that otherwise could look like a straight line. Yeah, exactly. I think that's really important too, right? Like we get served all these really like neat stories, um, you know, sometimes on purpose, sometimes not. Uh, and I mean, there's the analogy of social media being more like a highlight reel and we're seeing our own practice tapes and it just sucks. Like we see all the parts that suck and we're like, oh, this is terrible. And some of my favorite parts in people's books are like, I mean, that might sound kind of, it's funny. Some of my favorite parts in people's books are definitely like the low points. Like they're like, oh, I like I'm in the, I, I think it was Ryan Holiday who was writing beginning of Ego is the Enemy. He's like, oh my gosh, like I, you know, I, to say that like everything was smooth would be like to omit so many of the things I was in the emergency room after having this kind of, you know, breakdown or whatever. Right. Like, but uh, if you look at his journey, it's like pristine. Like it's like, Oh, this guy is just like super good at what he does. But I appreciate the candor into moments like that. Um, and I think, I think it's more relatable in that sense. Right. I don't think it's necessarily like, Oh, like, it's nice to know that they also went through shitty moments. I mean, there is some degree of that, I think, um, but everyone goes through it. And I think mm -hmm. that's the most important takeaway is not to be like, oh, like they're also bad at this or whatever. It's more so like, oh, like they've been there too. Like that's a little bit reassuring and it's honest. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that is how we connect. Like you said, not focusing enough on the personal side of personal brand. I mean, we connect with other people through shared flaws, through shared experience yeah. and trials and tribulations if everything was just that highlight reel i mean it's not the highlights aren't as interesting like it's not even a cynical thing or anything like seeing people fail but that's that's where the learning happens and again for sure to loop it back around to quantity like we don't have the failures if we're not producing if we're not shipping and right. yeah so and mm -hmm. oh i just want to say that like the quantity also kind of um it forces in a way it encourages you, maybe not forces, it encourages you to document more snapshots of your life. So instead of just here and here, it's like, dee -dee 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 -dee. And, and if you're making something, it just oozes it out. Like, you know, even if you're like in a super sad place and you write something that's like about productivity advice, people can probably see that and they'll be like, yo, what's up? Like, is everything okay? Or like, you know, you'll go back and read it and be like, oh, like I didn't like, that was where I was and people can see it. And maybe, maybe everyone is better understands each other for that. Right. Um, and, Oh, I, I think what you said was, was very true. Like just about how that's how connections are made. And like, I think we, as a, as a group, we're all getting better. Like we share, it's very, it's getting easier to share the hard moments after you've gone through them like uh, oh like i was dealing with this a while back but now i'm good it's harder to be like i'm dealing with this right now and it sucks <laughs> and like i don't know whether it's going to turn out i don't know where the chips are going to fall but it's just brutal and i don't know if public is always the best way to do it like fully public but i think like being able to relate on a one-to-one one-to-ten like more private level is really important too because that's where the support network comes in and, you know, people might relate. Like there's the vulnerability thing, right? Um, where, you know, if you, there's a thin line between oversharing and vulnerability, granted, 
but if you open up, maybe someone else will open up too. So, uh, and then, you know, oh, we, we understand each other better and understand ourselves better as well. Yeah. I mean, that support network, it's, it's huge. That is the thing. I feel like that's sort of the common thread throughout this, like for your journey, for everything. We have that, that network that you've found and you're utilizing and others can do the same for themselves in, in their scenario, whatever they're experiencing, whatever they're striving for, finding that support network is hugely valuable. So I think that's a, a great place to wrap. Um, where should we send people to check out your book, check out everything that you're up to? Yeah. So my blog is at herbertloy.net, H-E-R-B-E-R-T-L-U-I.net. Um, my book is at herbertloy.net slash reps, R-E-P-S. Um, and I got a newsletter, best of books. So it's just herbertloy.net slash best dash of dash books. Uh, so I send three great books every month. If I, if you still want more self-promotion, <laughs> I'm at medium. So herbertloy.medium.com. And I'm also on Twitter, twitter.com slash herbertloy. Sweet. And actually, what are some of the books right now that are on your mind? Just out of curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the ones I just recommended, I'm trying to remember January's, but I'll just look at the ones that are kind of like on the table here. Um, mindset, I've gone seven years or so without reading it. And I decided, okay, I need to read the whole book. And I love it. I think that it's a really important book. So that's Mindset by Carol S. Dweck. Um, the Death of the Artist by William. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I William... Deresowitz, I want to say, I'm sorry, <laughs> Mr. D, if, uh, if I, I totally messed up your name. I'm sorry, Miss. I'm sorry, William. Uh, but it's, I actually didn't want to like that book because it's called The Death of the Artist. I'm like, this uh -huh. guy's so negative. But I love it. It's, it's so well-researched and like the, the perspective he, think, he takes, I think, is really, like he's done his work to earn an opinion. So I really like that book. What's the premise of that I one? Yeah, it's about uh, basically he covers the shifting forces in economics and also in society and culture that kind of culminate in uh, a drastic reworking of what we know to be art. So, for example, even something as, as simple as like the democratization of art, right? Like, oh, now everyone can be an artist. Well, that has a lot of different implications. So, for example, um, when everyone can has access to art and can consume art, then then artists maybe start uh, catering to popular taste instead of just to a king or queen or a patron of some sort. So that also has implications for how the art looks and, and the statements we're making. So that's a big part of it. Uh, a big part of it is, you know, the decline of the media industry and the uh, decline of professional reviewers and kind of reviewers as gatekeepers for better or worse, right? Uh, because reviewers would hold artists up to a certain criteria and you have to meet that criteria in order to get reviewed and then you you get to make it as an artist. But now, because review reviewers have been disrupted uh, and everyone kind of is a gatekeeper, then, you know, again, like artists are free to do as they like for better or worse, right? Um, so, I mean, those are just two of uh, many other great points that he makes um and i didn't want to like it because i thought the title was i, I didn't <laughs> love the title uh -huh. but i also thought like coming from a reviewer 
I, I still disagree with some of his points, but I really like, you know, his, his investigation. And I really appreciate that. Yeah, a great book is so hugely valuable, especially when it isn't maybe aligning with your original thoughts. Because and we can have these huge inflection points in our lives based on one lone book. Like, for me, that it was like a long time ago now, but it was like when the four-hour work week came out, that was the first oh. time I realized that, oh, you can do this stuff. Because I had no one in my life that like did that. I had never encountered anyone. And it was so early in the internet days, like... Twitter was still really new and stuff. So I was following people and that's how I found the book. But yeah, a great book makes all the difference. How important would you say books are to your writing? Because I I really think a reading practice is hugely valuable. Yeah. So books, I mean, here, I'll, I'll quickly show you. I hope this isn't too uncon like weird for the viewers. No, it's all but good. This is, these are my shelves and... Um, I think I have another shelf at my folks' place, but that's how, like, I just love books and I love buying them. I love reading them. And I, you know, I, I mean, I'm getting more into the ebook sort of thing, uh, more convenient for travel and stuff for sure and space. But I just think that um, books are unique in the sense that a person has done their best to try to structure a lot of the stuff that they've learned into the best possible way they can for most people's brains to consume and also to be interested by, right? I think that's what a, a, a good book should do. Um, and so it's infinitely, like, I don't know where, I would not, probably not be writing if I didn't read so much. And, um, and also taking notes on it and kind of, that's part of it as well. It's like, I think each book is kind of made up of like just a bunch of other books at the end of the day. Oh, yeah. um, the steal like an artist idea comes to mm -hmm. mind, right? So Yeah, that's not even cynical. I mean, that just is. Everything is a remix of stuff in the past. Yeah, exactly. And so it's um you're if you're doing that as a writer, I mean you gotta live and you gotta have some life experience as well. Uh, but maybe uh, the books that you read are the answers to the problems that you're facing. And maybe a lot of other people are facing the same problems. And then the book you make will be, as a result, um, kind of a compilation of all of those books that you've read. Uh, the, the ROI on a book is just so crazy high. Like I think a, a lot of folks have been saying that. It's just, it's a bit of a lottery ticket. Uh, <laughs> but you might, I mean, for you and for our work week, like maybe even if you just read the deal part of the book, like the the process you'll be like, oh i got it like i don't need to read the brain quicken story i don't need it <laughs> i i just needed this thing and so um i think that from a reading perspective like reading cover to cover is is good i think it's still if you think the book is good then you should do it but maybe if not spend like 20 30 minutes and just go through the table of context the, the index and then flip to the pages you want to you want to learn and figure out and know what you want to do before the book as well like what you want to learn and then like maybe just pull things from there like i've also gotten a lot of value from that because you know a lot of books i haven't read yet on myself and i've i've always intended to read each one at some point and there's just you know there's more coming in and there's just no way to do it all so that's where the i think superficial reading or skimming method is really really useful yeah and do you trust any individual reviewers over others or how do you normally curate the books that you acquire 
So I have this big, big list in Airtable of probably 300 or so books uh, that I want to buy at any given point. Um, the list was actually used to be like 500 plus, but I kept it in Amazon and they like reset it, I think. Uh, so, so I'll, I'll just buy like nowadays I'll buy like three a month max, but before I'd buy like 20 at a time, 50 at a time, whatever. <laughs> and the way I kind of pick through the ones I want to read now is I, I'll read a bunch of reviewers like what the, I don't think I have a definitive single source like I'll just look at what everyone's saying um I actually just bought uh Blinkist mm-hmm. or I think I'm on my trial I'm not sure but I started using that to see hey is the book there or not so if the book is there then I'm probably like okay well this is a pretty like commonly read book so yeah the that's value... the 15 minute sort of synopsis of the book Blinkist right mm-hmm. yeah so Blinkist has like uh, I mean, you hit it on the nose. And so that's, um, I would read the summaries there and be like, okay, does this just look that interesting to me? And usually that's enough. Like, I mean, not usually, like sometimes that's enough, but sometimes I'm like, oh, like, I, I think there's more to this that I'm missing from the summary. Like I have a lot more questions and the summary doesn't answer them. Then I'll buy it. So the most recent one that happened for was uh, Finite and Infinite Games by James P. Cars. And, um, and I'm so happy I bought it. Like it was, you know, there's a lot of stuff that was missing from it. And I did not intend, the book is, itself is already kind of small. So I wasn't intending to speed read through it or anything. Um, but yeah, that's kind of, uh, that's kind of how I sort through what I want to read. But honestly, like that might be 50%, like pre-buy is 50%. And then post-buying, looking at the table of contents and index is the other half where I'm like, oh, like, cool, I'll, I'll put, 30 minutes into this and see what I get out of it. And maybe a good chunk of the time, if the book is good or if it's what I need it to be at that time, I'll just be, oh my gosh, I I got to read the whole thing. There's no way I can't. Yeah, I think that's hugely value, valuable advice and hopefully other listeners jump on that email list to get your curated recommendations for them. So yeah, thanks again yeah. for this. This is awesome. This was a great conversation and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jeff. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was great. I want to thank Herbert for joining me on this episode. Be sure to check out everything he's up to at herbertloy.net. That's H-E-R-B-E-R-T-L-U-I.net. As always, this episode of Starting Now is brought to you by Built. At Built, we help you get started online. Whether you want to start a blog or a business, head on over to built.co. That's B-Y-L-T dot C-O to get started. Built. Your website, built for you, simply. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening right now and check out the YouTube version on, well, YouTube. Uh, Hope you're enjoying it. And that'll do it for this week. Again, I'm Jeff Saris. This has been Starting Now, and I will see you next time.